Hello and welcome to the MSL Consultant Podcast. I'm your host and founder of MSL Consultant, Aoife O'Dwyer. Today on the podcast, I interview VP Medical Affairs in the US, Ike. We discuss his career journey from clinician to his current role, typical launch activities for MSLs, and the difference between field medical and head office medical affairs. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Ike, hello, and welcome to the MSL Consultant Podcast. Thank you, Aoife. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm really humbled that you invited me to your podcast because I've been a fan and following you for years now. I've even bought some of your products. So mm, great to be here. Thanks know. so much. Um, so before we get going on the topic today, can you introduce yourself to the listeners and give a little bit of your background story? Okay. All right. Well, my name is Ike Ogbar. Um, I'm a physician by training, internal medicine uh, physician by training. I'm currently the vice president and head of medical affairs for Chinook Therapeutics, which is a startup company started three years ago, uh, based in Seattle, USA, that's focused in developing uh, rare kidney uh, disease drugs. So I've been there now for close to 11 months and really enjoying it. Um, so um, that, that's essentially uh, me in a nutshell, yeah. Fantastic. And can you give the listeners a little bit of background in terms of how you got to your role and the different kind of roles that you had before and you got to your current role? Absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, I was trained in internal medicine and I actually practiced as a physician for about four years. What made me decide to transition to the pharmaceutical industries, I wanted to make a bigger impact on a global scale. And I recognized in doing my research that the pharmaceutical industry influences healthcare policy reform, brings the new products, and they have the biggest resources in terms of financial resources. So if I wanted to be able to touch more patients, um, I felt like I needed to you know, work in the pharmaceutical industry. It was, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a permanent career for me. Uh, I always thought if I didn't like it, I could go back to clinical practice, but I ended up really enjoying it. And I've done a lot of great work in my 13 years in the industry. My first job, I worked uh, for a contract research organization, CRO, uh, doing phase one clinical trials. And it was a great introduction to the industry because I got to work with different clients, different therapeutic areas. The studies usually lasted a week or two weeks. So I did over 50 trials in a matter of a year and a half. I really got to understand the first part of developing a drug. After that job, I transitioned to a small biotech company uh, based in Texas, where I was the clinical development lead for a diabetes drug. Um, the drug was later um, approved in Europe, but not yet in the US. It's, it's an SGLT2 inhibitor for diabetes. Then as I got closer to launching that drug, I decided I wanted to get more exposure into medical affairs because um, uh, in, while I was working on phase three for this drug, I was doing um, advisory boards, meeting top key opinion leaders in the space. And I felt like I enjoyed that part of the work even better than designing drug trials and, and monitoring drug trials. So I transitioned to Merck where I got my first um, uh, medical affairs role. It was a field-based role. I was an MSL for Merck for three years, um, uh, covering the cardio cardiometabolic uh, franchise. I worked on great drugs like Genuvia and, and Zocor. So after I did that for three years, I decided I wanted to go back to an in-house strategic role because that's what I was doing when I was in 
drug development. And so I got my first job, in-house job with Sanofi, uh, where I was um, the um, US medical lead for their pipeline metabolic products. I did that for close to two years and unfortunately was laid off because uh, they hired a new CEO who decided to change business priorities. Um, I was recruited by Bayer uh, to lead the launch of a kidney drug. So I moved over to Bayer where I was um, uh, you were, uh, uh, an executive director um, uh, to lead um, the launch of their a kidney drug that they had. Was a good launch, successful launch. The drug is called finirinone and it's been approved by the FDA. Then the pandemic happened, <laughs> and uh, so uh, and um, I decided to move back to Texas, where my family is, and um, and um, join the company that allowed me to work remotely, which is where I am now. So, so Fantastic. now, yeah, loads of. Yeah, wonderful experience there. And I'd love to deep dive um, on some mm -hmm. of the things you touched on. Um, in particular, you mentioned um, when you worked at Bear, um, you're able to lead a successful launch. Can you mm -hmm. give the audience an idea of some of the things that are involved in launching a drug, some of the things you need to think about um, as a strategic um, head office medical affairs role in order to ensure a successful launch of a new drug? Okay, so the blueprint uh, to launching a drug, um, and and everyone who's launched a drug knows this. Uh, you have to prepare the company. You have to prepare the uh, the uh, prepare the product, and you have to prepare the market. And what do I mean by that? Um, in medical affairs, I like to narrow down our role to three things, and I, I call it the three E's. Uh, what we do is uh, education, uh, which is medical education, whether it's through symposias and conferences, CME, a company-sponsored education. Second thing we do is stakeholder engagement, whether it's through advisory boards or our field team doing one-on-one -on -one engagements in the field. And the third thing is evidence, whether it's evidence generation or evidence dissemination. And so those three things are the tactics that we use to launch a drug. And, and, and to do that, you have to prepare the company basically develop governance, hire the right roles, make sure you're adequately resourced uh, for the launch, and then preparing the product. You have to generate data to show them the uh, value of the drug and why uh, that it meets a need in the, in the market. And the final piece is preparing the market. Um, you have to educate the top key opinion leaders so they can be advocates for your drug and educate prescribers and other stakeholders about the drug. You have to meet with the payers and um, advocacy groups and uh, the professional societies. So it involves a lot of education, a lot of engagement, and a lot of disseminating of data. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I think what you said as well about um, engaging the top KOLs is really important, as you mentioned, because they will then educate their peers. But also, mm -hmm. it's a really useful opportunity for field medical to understand challenges um, in the space from clinicians, from KOLs, and they can use some of those insights to pivot the medical affairs strategy if required as well. And I think particularly mm -hmm. nowadays, more so than in the past, because the scientific landscape changes so quickly, the ability yeah. to be able to pivot um, the strategy when required based on HCP needs and KOL needs is something yeah. that is quite important in order for companies to stay competitive. 
I agree with you. I feel that the MSL, the field-based role is critical to this because um, you can educate the top KOLs, but if, if, it's, if your message is not resonating locally, you're still not going to have a successful launch. And I think uh, uh, the MSL team is critical for that. You know? Yeah, and I, I think that is really important what you said, the ability not just to focus on the tier one, but to have that yeah. real global to local engagement plan to ensure that across the board, um, the messages and the scientific narrative um, that you are crafting um, is really landing with the right people to ensure that the right patient gets um, the right treatment at the right time and everybody knows how to use the medicine in an appropriate way. Absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned um, that your training is as a physician. I'd love to understand, as someone who worked as a physician um, like yourself for four years, um, do you find that when you're engaging with KOLs, you're able to leverage your experience as a physician to really help build that peer-to-peer -peer relationship with them? Absolutely. I thought I think it was critical, especially when I was an MSL. I think the key to being an effective uh, MSL is to be recognized as a peer and recognized as a as a knowledge expert in the in the field. So when you can give concrete examples of of, of um, interactions or scenarios where you had similar patients as they had, or you can relate to some of their pain points as a prescriber. I think it really resonates uh, uh, with uh, with the audience. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and when a company is preparing for launch, typically, is there a time frame that you would recommend that they have MSLs on the ground? For example, should it be six months, 12 months, 18 months before a commercial launch in order to um, educate those clinicians, build some relationships, um, and also understand the needs in the space? Yeah, so I think the timing um, varies and, and it depends on the complexity uh, of the product or the science or, and whether it's a uh, first in class or, or you know, uh, but in general, I always say earlier is better um, in terms of building a medical affairs organization. Like for a medical affairs organization, I think it's critical to start two years before launch. Um, and you can bring in a couple of MSLs that early to help with clinical trial recruitment, clinical trial um, um, troubleshooting and things like that. And if they start building relationships that early, even during the clinical trials, by the time you're getting closer to launch, you have, you've made a deep and big impact. But in terms of when you build the full team, in general, I like to say in the middle of phase three, um, a, a few months before top line data gets out, you wanna bring in your team, train them on, on the science. That way, once you have um, the top line data out, they can start educating the, um, the public on, on that product. But for sure, I think it's, it's, it's critical to have a couple of in-house uh, strategists and a couple of um, um, MSLs around two years, two, a year and a half or two, and, or a year and a half to two years before launch. Because in order to successfully get the message out, it, it requires repetition. And the earlier you bring in that uh, medical affairs team and the more frequent touch points you have, the more likely you're able to change practice and change behaviors. 
Um, and you talked about in-house medical. For those people who are listening who aren't as familiar with what in-house medical looks like, could you describe maybe some typical activities or a typical day of someone who is in-house medical? I know there's yeah. a lot of different terms. I've worked with yeah. scientific advisors, medical advisors. Um, there's yeah. a lot of different terms for in-house right. medical. Um, yeah. But maybe you could describe kind of a day-to-day -day of what that looks like in comparison to the MSL who was out in the field engaging with KOLs. Okay, in terms of their different functions that are considered in-house medical affairs or maybe medical affairs strategists or scientific advisors, whatever you want to call them. I'll start with the um, a medical director. Some people call them scientific advisor or med I call, I know I, I refer to them as the medical strategist. And they're the ones who who develop this, um, the, local, the, the national strategy if, if they're a, a regional director or the global, if they're a global medical director, they develop the global uh, strategy which the different markets adopt. And so the way they do that is they, they organize ad boards to get insights, they assimilate the insights the MSLs bring in uh, to help guide the strategy. Um, uh, and they do those three E's that we mentioned, uh, trying to create resources that the MSLs can use. They train the MSLs, they train, they can even train sales teams. So that's the medical strategist. You also have the scientific communications team. Uh, under that team, that's, they can be a publication lead. They're in charge of uh, developing uh, publications. You can have folks who are in medical operations. They're the ones who organize the the conferences, the congresses, or 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 troubleshoot your your CRM like Viva and things like that. That's your medical operations. Uh, so you can uh, you have medical information. Medical information team uh, are the ones who create your standard responses to frequently asked questions in the team. Things like that. So that's one arm uh, of scientific communication. Some companies they can have patient advocacy groups fall under medical affairs. Some companies, it falls um, into a separate group. In my company, they happen to fall under medical affairs. And the patient advocacy, um, we call we call her uh, head of uh, strategic collaborations. So she's in charge of engaging with the patient advocacy groups and the professional societies, and eventually the policy groups. And, um, and then one, a couple of other potential in-house um, strategic roles are, are sometimes HERR, Health Economics and Outcomes Re um, Research, can fall under medical affairs. Sometimes it falls under commercial, sometimes it's individual, but their role is to try to generate um, a, a data to support the health economic value of, of your product. And then the biggest part of the uh, so those are some of the uh, in-house medical affairs functions. And I think as well, all the different groups that you mentioned are all really important internal stakeholders for the MSL to engage with as well. You talked about the publication team. In order for them to be guided, they need to understand what are the gaps um, 
in the therapeutic area and the MSLs can share some of those insights. You talked yeah. about medical information, obviously for medical and everyone who works for pharma, they need to report adverse events, but also medical information and the FAQs is often a really useful document for a new MSL who's just joined a company and hasn't yeah. worked on the drug or therapy area before because yeah. it gives them an insight into the types of questions that HCPs and patients are asking. So it gives them that um, great insight as well. I agree, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, and I know a lot of your experience is in uh, clinical trials as well. As you said, you did a huge amount of phase one work um, mm -hmm. at the early stage of your career. Um, in April of last year, um, as I'm sure you're aware, the FDA released new guidance in terms of um, diversity and inclusion um, in clinical trials, um, yes. which has become an even more talked about topic in the pharma industry um, since that happened. I'd love to get your take on when an MSL is interacting with the KOL. Do you think it is important for MSLs to really understand the diversity and the types of patients that that KOL sees to really yeah. try and stratify the insights into different groups? Do you think that's something that should be done by the MSLs? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely critical. Just like everything we do in medicine, it's um, the more personalized the care or the insight, the more the more likely it's 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 going to work or it's actionable. Or, or, and so I definitely think diversity is key in everything we do in medicine. Diversity helps um, when you have a diverse population that you're testing your your drug you truly know whether this drug is gonna work for all different populations, or you're getting a full picture of the safety and efficacy and potential limitations of the drug. Now, if you study a drug, like I see a lot of phase three trials that are quote unquote called global clinical trials, but you look in the map and they don't even go to the African continent. How would you? How can you call a trial global if you don't? If you haven't gone to the most ethnically diverse continent, uh, which is Africa, or if they do, most of them just go to South Africa. They don't even go to Sub-Saharan Africa, and I think that's a big miss because if you can, if you include the African continent, you can recruit your patients faster. You can get more information um, on your drug. And when you do launch the drug in, in that continent, you, you, you're more confident that the drug will work in that population. And also for humanitarian purposes, they, this, they can get earlier access to potentially good drugs. The same applies for the Western world. When, you, when we do trials in the Western world, there are certain underserved populations that are underrepresented in these trials, whether it's, whether it's Native Americans or or, or African-Americans or, you know, things like that. So I think we need to be more intentional about being uh, inclusive in our trials because it, we will get more data and better data and we'll serve more patients that way. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think as well, it's so important for MSLs when they are reviewing clinical data to really look at the baseline characteristics and be cognizant of the type of patients that were recruited to that particular trial and the fact that, as you mentioned, that the results from that patient population may be different if it is um, in a different patient population. Absolutely. And I think medical affairs can play a critical role in, in helping 
by identifying diverse sites, you know, diverse populations, diverse sites that, and, and bringing that data in to the in-house team to share with the clinical operations team. That way they can have more diverse sites in their trials. Yeah, 100%. And I know there are a lot of new kind of key opinion leaders who work across different therapeutic areas and their main area of focus is actually um, health equity. Um, so their real driver is reducing health um, disparity, improving health equity. And I think these types of key opinion leaders will be another group that medical affairs and other pharma, people within pharma will be looking to engage more in the future as well to kind of really get their insight when they do advisory boards, when they do recruitment and when they're designing clinical trials as well. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, that was all the questions that I had uh, for you today. Thank you so much um, for your insights. Um, it's been brilliant to have this conversation and to really hear about your experience um, and to have this, um, yeah, this chat today. Thank you, Aoife. I really appreciate the um, opportunity to be in your podcast. And I just wanted a quick plug. I'm actually um, um, launching a book uh, next month. It's going to be called The Essential Guide of a essential guide to medical affairs. It's just going to be a description of all the functions and, and help people understand how the medical affairs role is critical to the industry. So look out for that. Yeah. Will do. I look forward to reading it. Thanks so all much. Right. Okay. All right. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you are an MSL and want to improve your ability to identify and engage the right KOLs, have better conversations with these KOLs and ultimately demonstrate your value to the company, I offer one-on-one -on -one private coaching for MSLs and you can check out the link in the show notes to learn more.